Right, as you find your place in Genesis chapter 38, I treasure your prayers for me tonight. If you know anything about reading through your Bible, Genesis 38 is another one of those chapters that to give forth the whole counsel of God renders a great challenge to the expositor sometimes. But I think we'll find there'll be great grace to be found in our passage in our study tonight in Genesis chapter number 38. Now, while you're finding your place there, I don't know how many of you grew up watching Popeye the Sailor Man. That's, uh, that's an old cartoon now, it seems like, but I used to watch Popeye the Sailor Man as a child, and I remember going around saying, I'm strong to the finish, because I eat me spinach. And I eat me spinach when my meemaw tells me to eat me spinach. Yes, sir. And so, uh, through that cartoon, there was a character named Wimpy. I mean, you remember Wimpy. And Wimpy was, uh, yeah, he was known for one thing, wasn't he? Yeah, you're having pictures of Wimpy in your head already, aren't you? And his phrase, you can hear him probably say it right now, and before I can even remind you of what he used to say, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger. Now, I'm starting out with kind of a, a light uh, way to approach this here tonight, but perhaps if Wimpy were to come to you or uh, come to, uh, maybe we should put Judah in the place of Wimpy here. And, uh, yeah, and let's see. All right, Wimpy, what are you going to give me by way of promising you're actually going to pay me on Tuesday when it comes time to collect for that burger I'm going to give you today? Now, I just gave you a synopsis, maybe, of a scenario that could apply to what we see here happening, I believe, in Genesis 38. Now, hamburgers are totally different from what we're dealing with with Judah and Tamar, so please don't misunderstand that. But I think we can relate to it in some ways. Maybe you've gone to the gas station before, and you get up to the pump, and it says, please see cashier, and you can't pump your gas until you go in, and... And uh, maybe you say, okay, I'm going to fill up. And they say, all right, we'll turn the pump on for you, but you got to leave your ID with us. you got to leave your ID at the counter and then go fill your car up with gas and come back and hopefully pay for your gas because it's the right thing to do. That's why you leave your ID with them because they're afraid you're going to drive off not pay for your gas, right? So that's another correlation. You have a quote here from Thomas Brooks that I think will uh, be good to keep in the back of our mind as we go through here. Grace and glory differ very little. The one is the seed, grace being the seed. The other is the flower. Grace is glory militant. Glory is grace triumphant. Think about that as we consider Judah and Tamar in this interesting, some have called it interlude. I don't know if I would be comfortable even giving it the title of interlude. I think it belongs right here in Genesis 38 where by divine inspiration it's placed I believe it's a chronological accounting here in the middle of the life of Joseph. We need to understand what happened with Judah. Now, I want you to pick up with me in Genesis 38. We won't read the whole chapter. I'm going to spare you from that. You can read that in your private time sometime. I encourage you to read that because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Every word is profitable. And so we're not minimizing every word here, but we're getting to the end of the chapter, and we come to verse number 27, the Bible recording, and it came to pass, Genesis 38, 27, 
And it came to pass in the time of her travail, that is, Tamar's travail, that, behold, twins were in her womb. And it came to pass when she travailed that the one put out his hand and the midwife took and bound upon his hand a scarlet thread, saying, This came out first. And it came to pass as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. And she said, How hast thou broken forth? This breach be upon thee. Therefore his name was called Phares. And afterward came out his brother that had the scarlet thread upon his hand, and his name was called Zara. Lord, I pray that you'll help as we study your word tonight. I pray for divine enablement, for the filling of the Holy Spirit. Guard my mouth, set a watch over my tongue, that I say nothing more than what you'd have said here tonight, Lord. We need the Holy Spirit in this. There are some adult concepts that are included in Genesis 38, and we have a very mixed audience here of uh, ages, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to be wise in our approach to this and understand what the Holy Spirit would have us to learn, and may there be great application and truth given here tonight for each one of us as we consider your grace, your providence, all in light of our depravity. Lord, I pray that you would accomplish your will and purpose tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I was talking with another pastor friend recently, and we were uh, discussing the state of affairs of missions, particularly in China. And those who have been with us on our Wednesday night meetings, remember a few weeks ago, we had a letter from our missionary that's over there, Matt Linquist, and he was sharing with us some of the grievances that are happening uh, by the Chinese government actually paying people to turn Christians in for preaching the gospel over there. Well, there are some pastors in the area, some missionaries in the area, and these are good men and good good women, good men that are missionaries out there that uh, some of them have decided to just disband their church and to have small cell groups, and they just travel around and they go to various cell groups, and that's how they're overcoming some of this government oppression from the communist regime that's over there. And the emperor, if you want to call him that, okay, I probably shouldn't say that, but... Uh, nevertheless, there are, there are other pastors, for instance, one that we were talking about today, that he's decided to be part of a, a government-sanctioned church. And so they have a building and they have all these things. But in order to do that, you have to put on paper that you're going to be one way for the Chinese government to allow you to be a sanctioned church. And so this pastor is a believer and he loves God. And so on paper, this is what they're telling the Chinese government they are. But this pastor, he has this group, he preaches solid biblical messages. And so in one way, he is presenting his ministry to the government as what would be required. In the other way, he's preaching the unadulterated gospel to the people that are coming. So we need to pray for him that he doesn't become exposed in a way that would cause damage to what he's able to do there. I give you that as an illustration that sometimes God's people must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Now, please don't misunderstand this as any kind of uh, condoning of what Tamar is doing here. We have no parallel today that I can illustrate for you. I have racked my mind and thought, okay, what would be an equivalent legal situation that would allow a Christian to do something? You won't find an equivalent today. Please understand that. You might talk about co-signing on a loan with someone, or or something being called due, or some kind of 
debt that has to be paid. You might think of all kinds of scenarios that would fit within the ethics that we might be under today. But more than one commentator I read pointed this out, and I thought it was a good point. It's wrong to impose Christian ethics and rest them and force them into Genesis 38 because it's not in a Christian day and time in which Tamar is functioning and operating. And so don't read this through the lens of Christian ethics. Don't read this chapter with that because you'll come away doing some great disservice. Putting Tamar in some places maybe that uh, would be unjustified and you'll have to stand before God and how you handle Genesis 38, as will I. And so I'll give you the careful handling that I've given to it. But think about those pastors having to do that. They're telling the government one thing, but then they're practicing, in essence, another. Think about other areas where maybe we have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Uh, There are other illustrations, for sure, but none of them compare today with what we're going to read in this Old Testament scenario in a Canaan land in a faraway pagan land. And these Canaanites dwell in the land, and so the culture is permeating everything that we read. This is a very pagan culture. And Jacob and his family have moved back down in the midst of this pagan culture. We've already seen some of the ramifications of what has happened as they've come back into Canaan. I would make this statement to you. Maybe you want to jot it down somewhere and think it through. Read through Genesis 38 and see if you can understand how I came to this proposition. When our depravity as fallen sinners, as human beings, when our depravity threatens to stand in the way of God's plan, when our depravity endangers the very plan of God. You can mark it down. His gracious providence will protect His purpose. And I've really appreciated the theme of grace that's been woven through each song we've sung and the prayers and different things. Grace is the key to this chapter. Grace in the sense of unmerited favor. God giving us that which we do not deserve. Now there's some things we need to consider about the culture and uh, where we find ourselves in Genesis 38. Let's just back up and remind ourselves where we're at in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis began where you should begin, in the beginning, with God and creation. From there, we uh, looked at how the nations became and how, uh, how mankind did what was evil in God's eyes, the imaginations of their own heart. God brought judgment on the world through the flood. And after the flood, there were eight souls that lived through that worldwide judgment, Noah and his sons and their wives. And through those three sons of Noah, yes, I'm mentioning three sons, because Adam, how many sons did Adam have? Count them. Mentioned in the Bible, I should say. Three mentioned. We have Cain, Abel, and Seth. Noah, how many sons did Noah have? He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so the sons of Noah disperse and begin to repopulate the earth. We have the account of Babel. And through, uh, through the dispersion of the people in, in the Tower of Babel, we follow and trace the line of Noah through his son Shem to a man named Eber, who had a son, who had a son, whose name was Abraham. 
Now you see what God is doing through the Bible. He's not giving us all the details of all the human history that's ever occurred. He's giving us specific accounts leading us to the line of Jesus Christ because He is the Messiah that would come to be the Redeemer of the world. So God knew through providence and His divine inspiration gives us this lineage of Christ that will factor into what we're looking at here in Genesis 38. So from Abraham then, the promises are given and the covenant is made uh, between Jehovah and uh, himself that he will bless Abraham and he will make of him a mighty nation. And his seed will be as the sand of the, the shore and the stars of the sky. And so Abraham has a son. The son of promise is Isaac. How many children did Abraham have that are recorded? Well, you've got to read Genesis to figure that out. How many sons did Isaac have? He had two. And the older was subservient to the younger. All right? So we follow Isaac, and we have Esau and Jacob. From Jacob, then, how many sons did he have? Well, he's going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. But I think it's interesting, as you think of Adam having three sons and Noah having three sons, then you come to the account here uh, of, of uh, Judah, and three of his sons will be mentioned as well. I don't know if there's too much correlation you can make there, but it is interesting because just as Jacob had twins, Judah is going to have twins. Just as Abraham's lineage was in danger until Isaac was born, of the promise being cut off. So Judah is childless through his own sons, Ur and Onan. There's no one to carry on the lineage. Not only that, there's some other things we need to think about. When our depravity endangers God's plan, His gracious providence protects His purpose. God is tracing the line of Messiah. We come now to the son of Jacob, named Judah, through whom Jesus Christ will come. If we don't have Genesis 38 in our Bible, the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus ends here. No more. Judah stands on the precipice of seeing the very promise that was given to Abraham cut off. So God, in his providence, makes sure that Judah's line will remain untainted and that Messiah will come as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as was prophesied in the scriptures. And so, as we look at chapter 38, we're picking up the story in the middle of the account of Joseph. Joseph, back in chapter 37, was a young man. He was 17 years of age, and his brothers conspired against him because they they disdained him, they hated him, they envied him. Oh, this goes back to that motif again of the elder serving the younger. Remember Joseph's dreams of the sheaves bowing down and giving and the stars, the sun of the moon, bowing down. We're going to serve you, Joseph. You're the youngest. Not Benjamin's the actual youngest, but he's the firstborn of Rachel. Joseph is. And so the brothers naturally are trying to thwart what God's doing. Isn't that what old Isaac tried to do with Esau? How'd that work out? It didn't. God still had his way because the prophecy was given to Rebekah that it would be through the younger. I think we could argue 
that we might see some of this here by Judah trying to do the same thing. Boy, when will we ever learn? If I could communicate anything to my children, please don't make the same mistakes I did. I can tell you plenty of what not to do. Don't make the same mistakes. In fact, I had a pastor that helped me as an intern. He gave us a, a book entitled that he wrote. It was a manual that he entitled, Please Avoid My Mistakes, and some suggestions for doing so. And it was great help to me because uh, he, he was able to share with me some, some mistakes that he made along the way. As church planners, you know, we get to make our own problems as we go. We don't inherit someone else's, as Brother Roland uh, has said before here in, in our church. Think about Judah now. He's saying, no, it's not going to be through Ur, it's not going to be through Odin because they're dead, but Shelah, well, uh, he's my third son, he's the youngest son. Uh, there's some things happening here, and God's going to intervene via providence through a woman named Tamar. As we look at the account that's given of Tamar and Judah, and what Tamar is driven to do out of desperation, utter desperation. Some have even called her the, the hero, the heroine of this whole story. How? This, this is some of the, these are some of the challenges you have to overcome with this. How can you call her a hero if you're going to force the kind of Christian ethic we would hold to today on her? These, these aren't heroic efforts. These are depraved things that we're reading about. I mean, this is right down the line of what happened to Dinah back in chapter 34. That's how difficult this is to publicly deal with in a congregational setting. But it must be given. We must see what's here because there's so many things that speak to us right where we live. Judah is going to make some decisions. Now, if you trace the story, I kind of wonder and agree with Dr. Morris in some areas here that perhaps Judah is drifting a little away from the family because of what all has happened surrounding Joseph being thrown in the pit. Judah trying to intervene and say, let's sell him. And remember, whose idea was it to sell him to the Midianites? It was Judah's. I wonder if there's not some remorse, some guilt that's plaguing him, eating him as he and his other brothers hold forth this coat of many colors that they dipped in blood and said, Dad, whose is this? He discerns. Notice, uh, that, that's some key words. He recognizes. So just as Jacob recognizes some, some token in chapter 37, Judah is also going to recognize some tokens in chapter 38. So will Pharaoh's uh, Potiphar. Potiphar's going to recognize some token that was left. There's, I mean, you cannot isolate the chapters. 37, 38, 39, there's so many contrasts that are woven together. If you get rid of chapter 38, you're not going to have the whole picture. Jacob is contrasted with Judah, is contrasted with Joseph, 37, 38, 39. It was Joseph's coat of many colors that Jacob recognizes. It was Judah's signet, bracelets, and staff that he recognized that Tamar had, and it's going to be Joseph's coat, again, his garment that he left when he put his running shoes on and got him out. It's going to be that garment he left behind that's recognized by Potiphar 
that puts him in prison. So don't don't negate those contrasts. They're they're vivid. When you stack the chapters on top of each other and see what Moses is doing, this chapter belongs. Without it, we don't have the history of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. We're missing key portions. Without it, we don't have practical instruction on how we need to walk close to God and not drift and wander. Without it, we don't have some of the theological things going on. Without it, we don't understand as much of the culture of the day because of what it unveils to us and what it would be like to live in a Canaanite city called Adullam and Timnath, Timnah, in this day and time. So Jacob has moved down to Hebron. Joseph is presumed dead by him at the deception of his brothers. Here's another parallel, if you're taking notes. In chapter 37, it was Jacob who was deceived by the coat dipped in blood. In chapter 38, it's Judah who's deceived by Tamar and what she does. In chapter 39, there's more deception through Potiphar's wife, deceiving her own husband about what Joseph did. So the themes of deception. Remember, Jacob is the deceiver. In fact, one of the cities that's named here where uh, Judah's sons are going to be born, the name of the city actually means lie or falsehood in the Hebrew language. So you can see deception woven throughout. This chapter belongs in your Bible, and you need to give it serious thought. When God's people drift, first off tonight, I would share with you, God's plan can be in danger. As we pick up the story in chapter 38, we see Judah, he goes down from his brethren, and he turned into a certain Adulamite, whose name was Ira. So here's what happens. Judah, whether it's through remorse or his conscience or guilt or whatever, he just needs to get away for a while. He didn't go too far from home. He leaves Hebron, where the rest of the family is. And if we have the account chronologically here, then we understand by the time we come to the later portion of the life of Joseph, how Judah is back with his brothers to go get corn and bread and and deal with the famine. He's close enough, but he's far enough away that he needs some space. Are you with me? Maybe this has a lot to do with what happened to Joseph when they threw him in the pit. And he goes down to Adullam. Adullam in the scriptures is uh, it's not far from Hebron. It's not. It's about thir- 12 and a half, 13 miles from Bethlehem. Adullam is really known in the Bible. I, I, I would think that you might remember this story, studying the life of David. He was in the caves of Adullam, and this is where all those uh, people of distress came to him, the caves of Adullam. Well, this is in the hill country of Judah, of Judah and it's just north of Hebron, maybe about ten and a half miles north of Hebron. So he doesn't go as far as Shechem. He didn't go all the way up to Dothan, like you know where they were when Joseph had to go find them. No, he's staying closer to Hebron. But he goes down here, and I want to tell you, I think I see Judah beginning to drift. He's getting away from God's family. Now I just want to make an application, and as a preacher, I can do that, right? This is not interpretation. This is application camping recently and I asked our trailman I said, or somebody that was sitting around the fire I said, what happens when you take the coal out of the fire and you set it off to the side? Does it burst into flame and, and get hotter and hotter? No, it cools down and it gets cooler and colder until it goes out. 
If you want to stay on fire for God, the best place to do that is with God's people. And I'm not saying that Reuben was right and Simeon was right and Jacob was right and all you know. But this is God's. This is where God's promised people are, and this will become the nation of Israel. God's grace is on them. They are to be a light to the world of what Jehovah can do. And Israel will be when he leads them out of Egypt by a strong hand. The, the Red Sea deliverance is a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what he did on Calvary. That great gulf that's fixed between us that we can't cross apart from Jesus Christ. He was broken for us, and it's by his blood we're made whole. And that's the gospel for us today. In this day and time, they were the people of God. They were known. Jehovah had appeared to Abraham and had revealed himself through the Jewish people and through Jacob. You can see him and you can see God appearing. Bethel, how many times have we seen? I've met with God face to face, he said. He's been a witness to God's grace and glory. And now Judah begins to drift and he says, I've got to get away from it. You know, sometimes church is the place where you get hurt the most. Can I, can I just urge a word of caution? Even when it's God's people that do the hurting, the wrong thing to do is to leave. Because it, if that's the case, then why are you coming to church to begin with? It's either about you or it's about the other people, and it's not about Jesus at that point. Because one thing you have to understand is that Jesus Christ purchased the church with his life's blood. It belongs to him. Does it mean all the people are always going to be perfect? Absolutely not. You find a perfect church, one preacher said, go join it, and it'll no longer be perfect, right? So where there's people, there's problems. Because people bear problems and carry problems. And yes, sometimes God's people can say hurtful things, but so can the clerk at Walmart. Anywhere you go, people will hurt you, and this is just human nature. We're prone to this. So to drift away from God's people is going to put you in a dangerous position. Why? Because this is where decisions are made. And as Judah gets away from his brethren, he gets away from God's people. He drifts. And yes, I'm pulling a little bit from uh, from our time at Treasure Mountain with this, the dangers of drifting. It was uh, a pastor that preached on that message. You might remember that, Brother Mike. You were there. Uh, but I'm going to use a little bit of that here for what Judah is doing. He's drifting. There's a danger of drifting. When God's people drift, it can endanger what God would want to do. If Judah doesn't have intervention, as we mentioned, Jesus Christ is not going to be coming through his line. God's got to do something. He's drifting away from God's family. He's drifting away from the covenant promises of God. He's drifting away from where God's revelation occurs. Now, the, the application for us today is, where does that happen? When you drift away from church, you can expect to get more worldly as you go, right? So, let's follow Judah. He continues on and... His decision to drift leads him down into Adullam. For whatever reason, he feels like he needs to be down there. And he does exactly what Abraham had forbidden Isaac to do. He does exactly what Esau did that grieved Isaac so much. Maybe he's rationalized it. Maybe he said, I can't head up to Padanaram like my dad did to go get a wife up there. Uh, you know, this is what I've got to deal with down here, so I'm just... He goes to Adullam. He hitches up with this man, Hira, and him. And he builds this friendship with Hira. 
Judah saw there a daughter of a certain, what does verse 2 say? Canaanite. Intermarriage. There's going to be an unequal yoke. Paul is going to write this way. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Anytime you have God's people yoking up with the world, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be problems. And so in our relationships, we've got to guard those. But when we drift away from God's people, these are the people we're mingling with. We build friendships with them. And I'm not saying that we need to hate people in the world. We are to love them. We are to reach them for Christ. But if we're not staying close to God, there's a danger of drifting in this. They can begin to influence us. Before you know it, we've lost our moorings, and we're beginning to, to make decisions based off of, off, off of faulty conclusions that, well, you know, could, could God have brought someone to him? Yes, he could have. Where did Tamar come from? Read the chapter. I'm convinced that Tamar, I, I can't be dogmatic about it. If you show me proof somehow, some way that she's not Jewish, not descended from Abraham, then if you have, you know, a clear proof of that, I'm not going to argue with you. But in the chapter, it doesn't tell us her background. And I submit to you that Tamar is of the lineage of Abraham. So if Judah's so concerned about not being able to go up to Padanaram and get a wife like you know Abraham's servant did for Isaac and, and like Jacob did when he went up and found uh, Rachel, well, Leah. Oh, that's another theme of deception by women. Can I tell you that there's, there's, there's just such imbalance in this culture that we're talking about in Genesis 38. This is wrong. The way that women are viewed and treated in Genesis 38 and how there's almost this, uh, it's like there, there's one set of laws for the men and they don't apply to the women. There's a different standard. It's like a double standard. And here, you know, this is where Tamar maybe shines as the hero because she's fighting for her rights and she's doing everything she can within the extent of the law of her day to make sure that she stays in the lineage as was promised to her by law. Now when you follow and trace it, Tamar was selected by Judah for Ur. Ur was his firstborn son. Ur was born of the Canaanite woman. And her name is not listed here. She remains anonymous throughout the entire story. You don't know her name. We don't know what Ur and Onan and Sheila's mom's name was. We know what what her dad's name was, because it's given. And um, the daughter of Shua, that's who she is. So Judah has three sons. Ur, his firstborn, is so wicked that God just slays him. That's how the scriptures read it. He was wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord slew him. I'm going to let that sit right where it is because I think that's all the explanation we need about how wicked Ur was. Some have given comment on uh, he was involved in homosexual practices and different things of that nature, and that's the wickedness. Others commented on he's basically doing the same thing to uh, to Tamar that Onan's going to do, and, and he's refusing to consummate the marriage because he's rebelling against his father. I think that's a good way to understand it. If he's so wicked, 
here he is. He's the firstborn. He's the one to carry on the line. And he's refusing to go along with dad's plan. Rebellion could be. I don't know. It says he was wicked. He was so wicked that the Lord slew him. So now in this day, you need to understand, do some research about the Leverite marriage. Levar is a Latin term that simply means brother-in-law. And so in the law of this day, what would happen is if the husband died and he had a brother, then the brother would consummate and provide seed so that the inheritance could continue in the family. It's all about the inheritance, property rights, land, all of that factors in. It's foreign to us. I know, I get it, because we're Americans and we have different ways of doing things that are probably a little more civilized in some ways. But this is, this is the culture. Remember, these are Canaanites. And the Hittite laws of the day called for Leverite marriages. Now, the Mosaic law is going to include provision in Deuteronomy, I think it's 25, it's going to include provision for the Leverite marriage, and it's going to be part of the Mosaic law, so that the land that's given to God's people will continue. The greatest parallel you see to this, and probably one of the most familiar to us, is Boaz and Ruth. And you have there interwoven the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, along with the Leverite marriage. Remember, he can't marry Ruth until the nearest kinsman denies the right. So what Tamar's doing is something that is probably unstomachable in a lot of ways. But Onan here, I mean, what a character. He's The Bible says, He that committeth fornication, he sinneth against his own body. Onan here is committing such atrocity. He is rebelling against his dad. He's, he's not fulfilling the legal right that he is to do. He's avoiding responsibility. But yet he's still so lustful and selfish, he's going to abuse Tamar in the process and use her and, and not fulfill his responsibility that he's supposed to do. And that's lustful. And it's wrong. And then thirdly, you know, he's sinning against himself, his own body. And so, just like Ur, his older brother, guess what? Onan, the Lord slew him too. I think a lot of it centers around not wanting to bear responsibility. But the ethics of this, boy. So then now, Judah has one more son that's still alive. And if you do some ancient Near Eastern research, even today, uh, over in some Turkish countries, there's still a lot of superstition around some of these things. Uh, I read an account that was recorded of a family that, you know, it's, it's like, uh, what, what did they call it? It was something about, oh, I'm going to have to look it up again. The, 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 the Black Widow, something like that, where, you know, th th these women, they get, they get painted with this because their husbands, every time they get married, the husband dies. And so, put yourself in Judah's shoes. Ur's dead because he married Tamar. Onan's dead because he married Tamar. And now he wants Sheila. And Sheila is a man, by the way. That's his third son. Don't confuse the name. And so, what does Judah do? I kind of think there's a little superstition here in that Tamar's, you know, this black widow that's going to kill Sheila too if, if, if Sheila marries Tamar, or you know, goes in and consummates to try to carry on. So, what does Judah do? Well, Sheila's not old enough yet. Go back and live with your dad. What did he just do? 
he totally denied responsibility because it was up to him to make sure the lineage would carry on. And there were dowries and different things that would be given in this day and time to make sure that what Judah did didn't occur. So I don't know what broke down there. But he tells her, go back and live with Dad. When I got married, my wife's father came before the altar with her, and the preacher asked, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And her dad said, her mother and I. At that point, her dad let go of her hand and put it in mine and walked away, and that responsibility became mine. And if I were to go back to him today and say, I'm sorry, I can't take care of your daughter, you can have her back. Now you get an idea of what we're dealing with with Judas and Tamar back to live with, with Pops. What? So Tamar's, she's, she's willing to go along with that for a season. She's okay, I'll wait until Sheila's old enough, then we can fulfill the law. We can do the legal obligation here to, to carry on the inheritance and continue the line. Now watch what God does through this. Remember, we mentioned, uh, who was Sheila, Onan, and Ur's mom? Was she Jewish or Canaanitess? And I point out to you, I believe Tamar is Jewish. Because Judah selected her. Notice he selected Tamar for her, but uh, he didn't even talk to Dad, Jacob, about his Canaanite bride. Go figure that out. So he selects Tamar, and her Onan die, and Sheila's not old enough. So he says, wait. Now Tamar is a wise woman. She figures out what's going on. So Sheila finally grows up, and he's old enough to do his legal responsibility. And Judah refuses. He refuses to allow Sheila to take that responsibility. So Tamar then takes matters into her own hands. That's the long story short. She says, all right, if he's not going to do the right thing by the law, I will. Now, how she went about it, that's where I'm telling you, you can't just take this and say, oh, yeah, well, be careful, be careful, because it, you will stand before God for the decisions you make, and so will she. But Judah himself made the comment in our passage, she's more righteous than I. Why? He gives you the reason why she's more righteous. Why is Tamar more righteous than Judah through all this account? Because Tamar kept the lineage and fulfilled the legal responsibility when Judah failed to. He says, if you read it, uh, where's the verse? He says, Judah acknowledged them, verse 26, and said, she hath been more righteous than I because that I gave her not Sheila to Sheila, my son. And he knew her again no more. So as you see this unfold, now, we've got to plug in another piece of the story. Judah, as uh, the story unfolds, her owning her dead, Sheila is waiting to, to be given to Tamar. Tamar is waiting to be given to Sheila, I should say. And she's going to remain a widow. And verse 11, she stays at her father's house. In the process of time, the daughter of Shua, remember back in verse 2 who that was, the daughter of Shua is Judah's wife. Judah's wife, she dies. So tragedy strikes the family. Well, we can see a parallel with uh, with Ruth again, can't we? Uh, 
And they go down to Beth, they, they leave the house of bread, they go down to God's wash pot Moab, and the, the, the dad and the two boys, Mahon and Kilion, they wind up dying down there, and Naomi said, go back broken, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Lord hath dealt bitterly with me. And so now, tragedy strikes. As Judah has drifted, he's endangering God's plan for the lineage of Jesus Christ, for the lineage of Messiah. He's drifted away from God's family. He's drifted into an unequal yoke with this Canaanite woman. He's drifted into worldly corruption. Now trace the story. It goes on. Judah is grieving. He's dealing with the loss of his wife. And the time of shearing is upon them. This would be like payday, okay? Alright, for those in the who uh, have any military service, you know what payday means, right? It's time to, we get off the boat and we get to the shore. First place we're going to stop is the bar, okay? That, I'm just talking in, in terminology that would relate to where we're at today. Now, not all, so, not all you know, soldiers do that. Not all sailors are like that. Some of them have, have good, good convictions. But by and large, you know, the, it's a hard life. It's a hard life. And so Judah, it's payday. And he makes his way up. I really see him operating off impulse here. Be careful. Men, especially in this room, be careful on making decisions on impulse. And here, you know, Tamar gets word. He's headed up to, get this, of all places, he's headed up to Timnah. Now, Timnah is just north of Adullam. And Timnah is going to show up again in the Bible in the story of the book of Judges. Judges chapter number 14, there's another man who's going to go to Timnah, and he's going to see a woman there, and he's going to go back to old dad, and he's going to say, Pops, I want her. Go get that woman for me to marry. Remember who that was? That was Samson. So Samson, his, his woman, also came from Timnath. Timnath. Uh, and so here, Judah's on his way up to do the shearing. It's payday, but he didn't bring anything with him. So that kind of tells me that he wasn't planning on this from the get-go, but Tamar knew exactly what she was doing. She had it all planned out. She said, I'm going to intercept him. Now, what she had to do was, was tragic. It's grievous. But she was, again, trying to protect her rights. And she was fighting for her legal rights. And I'll tell you, people get desperate and they do desperate things. I think Tamar's in a very desperate position. But what tells me that this was not a lifestyle for her is that she went up and she intercepted. She fulfilled the law when Judah wouldn't. The Leverite law. She fulfilled it. Now, look what God did. Totally skipped Shelah, son of the Canaanite woman. So now the bloodline runs from Judah directly to Tamar. No Shelah in the mix. Interesting, huh? If she's Jewish... Then God spared the bloodline from corruption. Now, that kind of breaks down because by the time you come to David, who was in his lineage, Ruth, and she's a Moabitess, no doubt about it. And David caught flack for that. So I don't know how far you want to take that to the extreme, but, uh, you know, what's God doing here? He's protecting the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But Judah drifts into worldly corruption. He's operating on impulses, and he looks, he lusts, and he takes what he wants, but he can't pay for it. So he has to leave his signet with her, and it's a pledge. She says, what pledge are you going to give me? you got to leave your ID at the counter if you're going to go buy the gas. And then she disappears, because he sends his friend, the Adulamite, he sends Hira. He says, okay, here's the kid. Oh, oh, that's another thing. 
How many times does a goat show up in these stories? Remember the deception with Isaac and Esau and, and Jacob? And there was a, a goat involved in that? Yeah, remember the other deception we talked about with the, the goat that was killed and then Jacob's coat dipped in it? And, and now we have another goat showing up in the deception. I wonder, I, I don't know, if there might be something more to that in that Jesus Christ is a lamb without blemish and he was slain for our sins. He died as though he were us for us. And through his stripes we are healed. I mean, what did that lamb do? What did that, what did that goat do to deserve any of this? He didn't. And yet, this, he's the payment. He's the payment price. Okay, Hira, go find her and get my stuff back. Go get my seal. Go get my staff. Go get my bracelets back. Well, Hira says, I can't find her anywhere. Now, when you study, you'll see different wording underlies the translation here that's describing Tamar's harlot. The first time she shows up, the terminology is used, the word harlot, which, by the way, Rahab is called a harlot. And uh, who else? There's like four or five that the term harlot is used, and yet these are ladies that show up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You need to put that together. So what Judah is doing is a different word when he sees Tamar and she's a harlot. Uh, that's a different word than what Hira comes and asks about. He's looking for it. He says, hey, where's the, where's the, 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 the priestess? Where the word comes, the word that Hira used come from the Hebrew word Kadesh, which means holy. So these were these were people that were set apart for temple service in this day. There's Canaanite customs. Remember, we're in a pagan land, and so he kind of he kind of brushes what Judah's doing under the rug, and and so Judah isn't seeing any religious connection to it. I don't think he's not going there to worship this. He's just he's grieving. He's trying to find comfort. However, he wants to. Just, to explain it away, it's wrong no matter how you look at it. But he gives in to his lust, and he and he and he commits this, and Tamar uses it to fulfill the law. Well, Hira goes and he can't find her because no, there's no there's no priestess, you know, prostitutes here. I don't know what you're talking about, Hira. We don't have those in our town. They're not they're they're nowhere around. What you mean? She's not there. Okay, so then Judah's in a pickle because now his name's going to be tarnished. Because she's, she's got this, and he's, he didn't make payment. And what a mess. What a mess. So then he says, well, just let her keep it. She's got my signet. In other words, she's got my driver's license. She knows exactly who I She's got my staff. But this is probably, this is probably, as the head of the tribe of Judah, this is probably the staff that sets him apart and says, this is who this is. Yeah, I mean, that's like video footage of the senator you know, in the hotel room. That, that's as clear as, as that could be. Well, I hasten on. God's providence protects His purpose from our depravity. Can I reassure you that through all of this, the wickedness and the sin, God's justice demands judgment for sin. Time goes by, about three months pass, Judah finds something out. Here's to the grapevine. Hey, guess what? You know that daughter-in-law of yours? She's pregnant. She's supposed to be a widower. She's she's not supposed to have any relationship. She's she's pregnant. What? So Judah holds her feet to the fire. That's where I'm saying there's an imbalance in the culture when it comes to women and men. And so Judah's ready to put her to the stake. I mean, he's he's about to burn her because that was the consequence for what she did in that day. He's going to burn her alive. 
she's going to pay for her sin. Can I tell you, God's judgment and His justice requires judgment for sin. And Judah is in is in the legal ramifications again of putting her to death this way. In this custom and in this day and time, it's horrific to think about. Yeah, but that's where Tamar's at until she says, "Oh yeah, by the way, whose are these?" Because whoever these belong to, the signet, the bracelets, and the staff, whoever these belong to, that's the father. And Judah, ah, busted, busted. He acknowledges it. I don't know. You know, by the time we see Judah again in the story of Joseph, do you recall the change? Something has happened to Judah by the time... Joseph, he stands before Joseph. And somewhere along the line, Judah is going to be conformed to the image of Christ in such a way that old things are passed away, behold, all things are... I think here, this was a turning point for Judah. He acknowledged his sin. He says it was a moment, you know, a moment of weakness. I gave in to lust. I should have never done it. She's been more righteous than I because she's fulfilled the law. And I haven't. I, was, I had an obligation, a responsibility, and I let that down. God's justice demands punishment for sin. Judah's going to carry this with him, in fact, through all eternity, because it's recorded forever in the pages of the Holy Scriptures. Judah, the line of the tribes, in the line of Christ, yeah, the son of Jacob, the wickedness. Not one of us can point our finger at Judah and say, I would have been better than him. Not one of us can say we're without sin. He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone, Jesus said to those men who had brought that woman that was taken. Where was the man? The woman was taken in adultery, and they're ready to stone her. And Jesus says, if you're without sin, cast the first stone. There was one person there that could have thrown a rock that day. So before we think we're better than anybody, let's remember, without God's grace, we all deserve punishment all deserved because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and maybe we come down on Judah for his lust what about yours what about the time you turned your back on God what about the time you let something else take his place in your life what about the time you took his name in vain what about the time you didn't honor your father and mother what about the time and the list goes on and on we've all sinned and come short we all deserve justice and judgment and yet There's a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Our Messiah, Jesus Christ, His blood washes away our sin. And this is where we close tonight thinking about His grace that provides redemption through Jesus Christ. I read the verses I did when we began because now we see Pharez and Zorah. Pharez is going to be mentioned in other places in the Scripture, particularly in Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 3. Because it is through Pharez and his descendants. Pharez, the younger of the twins. Because remember the scarlet thread was tied around Zara first. And Pharez broke forth. And through Pharez, the younger serving the, or the elder serving the younger again there. Zara, by the way, if you trace his genealogy, he'll show up again in Joshua chapter number 7. He's in the lineage of Achan. I don't know how that plays out in all of this, but that's where you see his genealogy going. Genealogy of Pharaohs leads us to Jesus Christ, our Messiah. So without Tamar, 
we don't have Jesus. Now, God would have worked it out, understand that in his providence. And that's why we're talking about this tonight, because his providence overshadows. His grace provides redemption through what Tamar did, as as selfless as it was, perhaps, as heinous as it is to think about, the sacrifice she had to make of herself and the horrific nature of this whole account in this day and time shows us the overshadowing grace of God in that he kept the lineage of Jesus Christ so that we today can have grace through him and through his shed blood. By his stripes we are healed. In the midst of our depravity, you know, our depravity can threaten God's plan. But I'm thankful to tell you that his gracious providence will protect his purpose. And nothing can thwart. In the end, God, God's will will be done in time. But let's do all we can to guard our heart from the dangers of drifting. Let's stay with God's people. Let's stay in his word. Let's avoid unequal yokes. Let's not be tainted by the world. And let's trust God and honor His Word. When we have responsibility, let's step up to the plate and let's do the right thing. As old Bob Jones Sr. used to say, just do right. Just do right. Well, I'd like to close with a story about Ernest Hemingway. How many of you are familiar with Ernest Hemingway? You've heard him before. Listen to this, because this summarizes, I think, well, everything we've talked about tonight. He's a well-known writer, Ernest, Ernest Hemingway. He was raised in a solidly evangelical home in Oak Park, Illinois. His godly grandparents, they graduated from Wheaton College back in the day. His grandfather, Anson Hemingway, shared a close friendship with none other than the evangelist D.L. Moody. Ernest's physician father had wanted him to be a missionary doctor, but his mother was too much of a city girl and refused to go. Ernest was raised in the church where he tithed his allowance, he sang in the choir, he read completely through his King James Bible, and he passed a comprehensive exam on it. After high school, he moved to Kansas City to become a reporter. He stopped going to church. He began drifting from his upbringing. He enlisted in World War I. He was wounded and took to drinking to try to ease the pain. He once offered his sister a drink. When she refused, he, quote, told her not to be afraid to taste all of what the world has to offer just because Oak Park had labeled it sinful and off-limits, end quote. He married a worldly woman, moved to Paris to further his writing career, totally alienated from his parents. Eventually, he'd go through four wives. He was notorious for drunkenness. In his late years, again I quote, he grew distant from everyone. He would not stand up straight, he stopped communicating verbally. A friend said that his every hour was filled with the pain of being truly lost and alone. Hemingway's own description was, and I quote, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead and there's no current to plug into. A vacuum. Finally, on a sunny Sunday morning in Idaho, age 61, Ernest Hemingway put a shotgun to his head and pulled the trigger. That is a tragic ending to a life that began in a solidly biblical home. What happened? He 
drifted away from God's people. He was influenced by unequal yokes, and the world corrupted him because he didn't hesitate to try all that the world had to offer. And the vacuum it left him with was so empty, there was no hope by the time he came to the end. But I'm here to tell you, it doesn't have to end that way. Jesus Christ can fill that vacuum and fill that void. Can I tell you, maybe he got caught up in mechanical Christianity and just the religiousness of it. It was all head knowledge. It never impacted his heart. He never let it sink in. He never let it make it here. We must allow Jesus into our life wholly and completely. It didn't have to go that direction. He made some bad choices. He distanced himself from God's people. He tried to marry. He married outside of the faith. He converted to a corrupted world. He could have availed himself to God's grace. He could have been conformed to Christ. His godly children and grandchildren could have followed in his steps. Instead, his beautiful, famous granddaughter recently took her life. His descendants, those that came after him, far from the Lord, drifted drifted, drifted. Every one of us is prone to corruption. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. We don't have to be conformed to corruption. We don't have to go down that path. We can stay close to Christ and his people if we'll avail ourselves of God's grace. His grace and glory differ very little. The one is the seed, the other is the flower. Grace is glory militant, and glory is grace triumphant. If we avail ourselves of God's grace through the descendant of Judah and Tamar, the Lord Jesus Christ, He's the one that can keep us from the corruption of this world. 